This is CliffCentral.com. Youth Leadership Platform. Here's a powerful thing. I mean, it's got a lot of firepower. If you can figure out a way to wrestle that fear, to push you from behind rather than stand in front of you, that's very powerful. I have a dream. Multiplying leadership, moving society the millennial way. You don't want to end up going after goals and dreams and neglect yourself. Welcome to the Youth Leadership Platform with your host, Bongani Dao. See, old friend, I broke more soldiers than you did. Identify yourself to the world. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Youth Leadership Platform with your host, Bongani Tao. Today, we have burning issues to tackle and quite an exciting and and very informative and very intricate show um, lined up. So today's guest is an author and she's also the director, co-founder and facilitator of what is known as the Consciousness Cafe, which is a pop-up dialogue cafe that moves to different places where they invited to really. So it could be museums. It could be here, Cliff Central, because they were here at some point and basically anywhere they needed. And, and what the platform aims to achieve and what it aims to do is to bring South Africans together to basically be a vehicle for conversations, honest, meaningful conversations and burning issues. So, but the you know the the subject of conversation today is not so much that as it is her recent book she's she's such a, a wonderful wonderful woman and you get to hear this and and understand what i mean by that and without any further ado i'd like to welcome to studio live from let me let me let me make sure i get this right claire yes it is where where, where are you in the world where I'm in the moment. Well, I'm, uh, I'm actually in Glasgow at the moment. Wow. You see, I would, have, I, I would have gotten it completely wrong. <laughs> I am 33 and a half weeks pregnant. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband is Scottish. And we're having the baby in Scotland. And then we'll be back to South Africa in a few months' time. Awesome. Welcome yeah. to the Youth Leadership Platform. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you for having me on the show. And for saying such nice things about me already. Uh, you see, me, I have deep sense of respect for you because you are one honest and transparent person that you know in the book as as we will get to discuss you tackle issues that if i was probably in your position i would have looked the other way and it shows a, a great sense of character and you know a, a deep understanding of purpose which i which i'm very interested to finding out what is your purpose in life because i think it played a part in you wanting to engage with us in a form of a book in the way that you've done yeah well that, what is my purpose i it definitely came writing lost where we belong definitely came from a deep sense of yeah an urgent sense of needing to to say something or to explore something, investigate something which was burning in my heart. Um, so, you know, as the book is about, it's as a white South African having been the last generation to grow up during apartheid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like many young South Africans in my 20s, I went to live abroad, 
I lived in London. I sort of used that opportunity to see the world, which was amazing because, of course, South Africa during apartheid had been very, very claustrophobic and very narrow-minded and very insular. And I think it does us all an amazing favor if we can get out and actually, you know, get some perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but while I was away, I, you know, I started to realize I'm not from these other places. I'm from South Africa. And the country is changing and becoming a very different place than it was when I was growing up. And I needed to find some way to, to belong to it again and to make sense of it, to fit in, but to truly fit in, not just to be a person on the fringe of this new country, to be really in the heart of this new country. Um, and so what I realized is I needed to do a lot of rethinking, re-understanding, repositioning of myself in society. So Last Where We Belong is really, I mean, you could say it's a selfish book in some ways because I, as a person, wanted to belong to the country that raised me. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I had to do lots of work for that to happen. Hmm. So, yeah, that's, what to, that's it, where to the purpose comes from. And I think... You know, some people would say, well, you could have just written a diary, you know, and then kept this to yourself. Exactly, yes. Uh, but I am a journalist. I am a communicator. I've always been, you know, since a little girl, someone who's read books and wanted to write books. So for me, um, sharing this was, you know, well, part of the therapy is writing it. And then, you know, we, we can't uh, we can't keep these things to ourselves, I think. if You know, when one of us changes... So all the people around us change. That's what always happens. So sure. I think if, you know, we have, yeah, there's another way of not being selfish. I get it. It's like you sharing this journey and this uncomfortable journey, uh, which makes me look in a bad light often. <laughs> to other and then we, we, we're going to get into that because I, I think it's, it's, it's very interesting how a, a lot of um, South Africans, mostly white South Africans in, in, in the context of lost where we belong, which is a, which is a wide perspective on, uh, you know, the politics in, in, in South Africa and basically a narrative on our history, um, the effect of it in the new South Africa. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like us to start um, at the Davuna River. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very fascinated by some of, um, what, what would you call this? The ideas or the reflections. That's the word that, that you made. And one of which was how you use this metaphor, uh, a metaphor for the racial landscape of the rest of, um, South Africa and class divide. So you use the river at, at Mtavuna, how on one side there's, wealthy white South Africans. And on the other side, you now get to the slums, you get to the poorer parts of like rural areas of, of, of South Africa. And now I want us to look at that as a metaphor of how South Africa post apartheid is still in, in, in that way. A practical example I can make is Santin and Alexandra. You know, there's only one road that separates one of the poorest townships in South Africa with the richest square mile in Africa. (laughs) What are your thoughts on this? Let's 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 deliberate this. So the Mtavuna River, that's where I cross the bridge, which I call the wormhole. Is that correct? Yes. 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 So, I mean, I think it's just it's so poignant, you know, within, you know, you're in the south coast of Natal. Um, you know, shopping malls, hospitals, every access you absolutely need. And you just cross over this bridge and you get, there's a casino right there as well, which is of course bizarre. And then you end up in Bazana and Flagstaff and Musiki Siki and the world completely begins to change. Um, and yeah, just, it's so, 
it's so interesting. There's these two South Africans that are living side by side um, in so many ways, you know, economically, socially, politically, continually. Mm, and how, mm, mm. and um, I think, I guess that's part of my book is um, trying to navigate between those two spaces and trying to f- figure out as, as a white South African, I can have a foothold in both spaces um, because I think I make a point later in my book that, you know, why has transformation and reconciliation had to happen on my, my old turf, mm. you know, mm. in the Satins, um, in the Rosebanks, in the Natal South Coast? Mm. Why, why do we, we, the white, not, not go to the other side? You know, what prevents us from going to that side? Mm. Um, and, and, uh, and it, of course, I think one of the things I come about is it's about fear. Mm. Um, Fear, fear of those places, you know, fear of dark South Africa, black South Africa. <laughs> yes. What we were reared to, to, to be afraid of. I mean, that was what the ultimate premise of apartheid was, I think, was to, to know, to keep you afraid and keep you, keep you back. Mm, mm. And, so, you, you know, I'd like us to, to actually explore that a, a, a bit more, um, after this point or this question that I'm, I'm about to ask next, because you, you put out an, an oxymoron of, of sorts in later in the book about how, you know, the fear was supposed to be instilled in the black person, but now instead the reverse of that has also happened where, um, white South Africans fear, um, being in black spaces as, 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 as you'd put it. Um, okay. but now with, with invisible boundaries, how have you been have have you been able to to re- completely remove them, and if so, how? Because you you speak right after the Mtavuna uh, River, a couple of pages later, you speak about invisible boundaries, how they still exist, how you know a large part of uh, Black South Africans, which make up their majority, are still not economic players. You know, they they're mm-hmm. still not part of the the bigger mechanics of of the new South Africa, right? Because there's, there's still those, those boundaries that are set, but now no one, not a lot of people, not no one, but not a lot of people get to realize that. But in your personal life, you know, having written this book, looking yeah. at black people and your, your black interactions, so to speak, have you completely removed the invisible boundaries? And if so, how? Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed the difference from when, when I first went to the Transgarden. And um, the old trans guy and began working on this book. I know, I mean, a lot of the book is about the fear I felt, the fear of getting out the car in the villages by sure. myself, sure. fear of getting out the car in Tata. So there was a lot of blocks for me. Yes. And um, I had to bring in a kind of white man, a white photographer, a wonderful man called Mark Schul, who actually came to help me and came to help me walk those streets. And, and some people say to me, well, wasn't it also your fear because you're a woman and a woman, you know, traveling alone is vulnerable and isn't this also a gender issue, which, you know, sure, absolutely. Sure. Um, but I mean, I'm also one of those people that I don't like to be, you know, I really don't like to be restricted by my gender at all. You know, I want to be an equal player in the world. So I didn't really think about it so much through those terms. Um, but later on, as I got braver, as I experienced, as I got, well, it's about familiarity, isn't it? As you, mm-hmm. as you get closer to people, you start to see the whites of their eyes. You start to see their mannerisms. You start to know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. It becomes very obvious, doesn't sure, it? Sure, sure. Um, but when you have been kept behind a car, kept behind a security fence, kept behind a wall, mm. 
and you haven't interacted with people. You don't know their tics and their their body language. You you can't interpret it. So I think the more I bolder I got, and the more I started to interact with black society per se, um, the more I started to say, okay, hold on, I can see who the bad guy is. Mm-hmm. Obvious. Mm-hmm. See who the good guy is. It becomes a little bit clearer. Hmm. And and then I took that back to Johannesburg and I decided to walk the streets of downtown Johannesburg, which I've always loved. I love the city and I love um I love sewing and I love making things with 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 uh, African wax print fabric. I always have done. So I would take myself shopping in town to go and buy this fabric. And I started walking the streets of downtown Joburg and actually realizing that, yeah, where the danger lies and where it doesn't lie. So it's really about pushing myself mm, mm. Um, and have I broken down those boundaries. I mean, I'm. I'm not fearful now. I'm cautious, but everybody's cautious. Everybody has to be a bit cautious, but sure. I'm not fearful in that same way. Um, yeah, and if it answers the question. You know, you know in fashion, they, they, they use a, a term called the fox, which um, is not very definite in, in, in its sense, but it, it refers to um, an, a persona of sorts that you'd like to attach to a certain ideal or a concept. So I, I, we'd say, or how it's applicable in this uh, situation is so you'd say that the folks of the bad person, so to speak, would uh-huh. then be the teaching of who to fear than the person that you were told to fear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we were taught to fear. I think we were taught to fear black people in general, except for the black woman who came and worked in your house and raised you. I mean, which is the complete irony, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the who looks after your dearest and nearest as a black woman, but then you don't trust black people. That's just, it's never made sense. Um, but I think, yeah, so to bringing us, I think it's stripping us away from that, that, that collective thinking, which is racism, that collective where we see everybody is the same. Mm. And we really have to start stripping it down and seeing individuals, seeing individuals, seeing individuals. Mm. Um, and I think that's very hard for us to unpick in every South African's mind, I think. I mean, I think this is how a lot of black people, you know, you hear black people talk about white people are exactly the same. Oh, those whites, those lungs. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the same kind of large brushstroke. And it's those brushstrokes that need to get smaller if we try I think if we're to make progress, mm. um, but it's a very hard thing to do. And, and it's very interesting that you say that because in, I think it's chapter 10 or chapter 11, where you um, speak about at, at the cafe in, in Brahm, where you speak about, I actually want to be seen as a person. So how do I navigate to move from people seeing me as part of the larger group of society that did what they did to seeing me as a person? Because at this point in time, I'm not espousing those ideals. In fact, I'm trying to move away from them. So can people not see me for me for once? Are you asking about yourself, Le Bongani? The, the, you know, the Brahm, the Brahm incident where you, you're yes. reflecting on, on, on the conversation um, yes. that you had with uh, the lovely lady. Her name is U Milisutando, yes. Yeah. Yes. So in 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 this so what what I'm what I'm asking is or rather commenting on is how what you are saying now in in moving away from the teaching of fearing black people um mm-hmm. by getting to interact with black people and actually seeing that it's not all black people that are bad but you know there's yes. certain people that are that are wrong and 
you, on the other hand, when you, when you were sitting with Umilisi Tando, you were saying pretty much the same thing that you, you wanted people to stop looking at everyone in the same way, you know, and see you for you as, as clear. Yes. But I think, you know, I, I think that it's, I can't expect people to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only, I feel like I can only fix myself. I can only fix the way I look out. Mm-hmm. And hopefully by the way I look out, others might start to look at me differently, which kind of happens towards the end of the book, which won't ruin the ending. <laughs> but um, so I think, uh, I think we can only take care of ourselves. We can only fix ourselves in that regard. And, and then we have to kind of accept often with very wide shoulders that this other stuff is going to continue to happen for quite a long time, that you're going to get put in this box for a very long time. Mm. Because you can, you can't really scream or shout your way out of it. Mm. You can't argue your way out of it. That is really because it's that person's prison that they're still in, that you knew what it was like to be in that prison, that prison of mind. Mm. Mm. Um, and I, I just, you know, and especially if people are, um, you know, there's so many, you know, stories and reasons why people would feel like that, you know, painful, painful reasons of things that happened to their parents, things that happened to their grandparents, um, during apartheid, um, things that, um, are still happening to them now and, and economically to them now. So there's reasons why people are, are, are angry and closed and want to keep up a certain frame of mind. Mm. Um, but not everybody does. And I think that's also, quite important I think when you start that's the other thing when you start to pick away at this stuff and start to have these kind of conversations mm-hmm. you start to realize, hold on a second this is not how every South African thinks or feels yes you know that gets a lot of headlines that umlungu that you know all of that stuff gets a lot of headlines and a lot of time and space and energy is given to it. And there's a lot more going on beneath the surface that doesn't seem to be able to kind of quite get up at the moment. Mm. Apartheid, quote, apartheid felt like an old folk dance. Everyone knew their steps. Even with the new music playing, few knew, few knew how to dance any other way. Close mm-hmm. quote. Do you feel it's 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 still the same for majority white South Africans? I think there's a, you know, there's a there's a. I don't know if it's the majority of white South Africans. I wouldn't like to say exactly that, but what I will say is, I feel like we play these roles still. You know, so the guy comes to your house to paint your walls, or to, um, I don't know. <laughs> The, the relationships that we have across across the racial barriers are often very transactional, okay, uh, and very linked to econ- economics. And one is offering one a job, one is one, you know, and often the white man is the one that's got that opportunity to offer that job. And it, it is a kind of dynamic which kind of really plays out, which continues to play out. Um, and also, it, it comes back. So, for example, we hired someone to. Um, in our house in McGregor to uh, do some lighting changes. And then he was laughing at me saying, oh, no, no, you can't choose that. That's not a white lady light, you know, you can't have that one. And I just thought that was so funny. Like it's given <laughs> it comes back to me. Like I, I can't get certain things because white ladies wouldn't get those things, you know? So mm-hmm. <laughs> there's this, um, yes, I do think we're, we're all stuck in this folk dance. Actually, something in our mind is stuck in that folk dance. Mm. Um, the way we talk to each other, the way we perceive each other, where we perceive what the other person will like or do 
or think about or approve of. Um, we kind of we haven't quite managed to, to you know change that conversation between us mm. always. But but I think a lot of it's also possibly linked to class. Okay. You know the the class. So when you when you start to be black and white and coloured and Indian wherever and you're all accountants and you're all working in the same office, maybe things change a little bit mm-hmm. or a lot. Mm-hmm. But if you're sort of one's a plumber, you know, one's an accountant, one's a dancer, whatever. There's there's, there's different dynamics going on, which you know. Then I ask myself, will those always exist because they exist in other countries too? You know, it's it's very hard to have a great relationship with someone in Scotland, even if you're not sort of of the same milieu. You know, that's sort of quite normal. Mm. So anyway, in that in that country, very very interesting. So you worked with time uh, when you went to the rural parts of um, Umtata, I suppose. Uh, yeah. What What are some important lessons, you know, reflecting on your journey through through Umtata that you learned and were and were very important in in your journey of, I guess, self discovery and 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 what lost where we belong tries to capture. Uh, my lessons from that time. Yes. Personal lessons. Personal lessons. Um, well, I saw, I saw my own, I saw the limits of my bravery. Um, I saw the limits of my courage, um, which was quite disappointing <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, I also learned, uh, I guess I learned I mean, it, it was, I think the big learning was about also, well, a big learning is about, uh, I, I traveled around with a translator, uh, um, called Jimmy Solani. Jimmy, yes. And, um, I think Jimmy was very philosophical about life in Ponderland and life in uh, post-apartheid South Africa. So it was, um, it was very, yeah, it was, I learned, sorry, I'm not answering this very well. Um, but, I think, sorry, you're going to have to edit this, Bongoni. Um, it's okay. It's okay. Lessons from Jimmy. I, I guess it was the, some of the things, like I was courageous, but Jimmy made me realize that there were some things to be frightened of hmm. legitimately. Like he didn't want me to pick up hitchhikers when I traveled alone. He said, you can't, you're a white woman. You can't do that. So I guess it was also what I learned was, I guess it comes back to the folk dance that you, you, your, your behavior is controlled by you, also controlled by the system around you and others around you. So you, you can try as hard as you want to pull yourself out of our system or out of this folk dance. But the others will pull you back down <laughs> and they will keep you in that dance. So I guess I realized that for, for, for South Africa to change, we would all have to change a little bit, mm. not just me. It didn't matter. I think when I went to the trans guy, I just thought if I could fix me, if I could be better, everything would be fine. Mm. But I realized that was really, really not true. Um, there's so much that is, slopping around and stopping us from moving on um and so many so much hurts so many hurts uh, and so many stories and i just i think i realized that 
um, your bravery can only take you so far, your, or your purpose or your insistence can only take you so far. Um, and then you have to wait for everything else to catch up and mm. to, to do, want to go on a similar journey. So I, I, I think I realized the sort of collective power of the South African apartheid legacy and how strong it was. I think that's probably one of the things I learned the most. Mm. You, you you compared you know the the political climate in in South Africa as well um, to like a out coin it racial chess where people or pieces on the board know only know how to move uh, a certain way. Apart from yeah. travel to help you understand the dynamics of race and racial interactions, what are some other ways you think that you know black and white can be able to start actually being I guess more flexible in how they think about the each, about each other, and and the racial interactions and relationships as well. Well, for that, I really think Consciousness Cafe is 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 the right platform. Is a great platform because so much of our conversations either take place online on Facebook, mm-hmm. which are are is a terrible platform for deep discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, Really, and people, we all know this. Or any social media for that. Yes, yes. Any social media and Twitter, and people just get their backs up, and they say sort of really often nasty or blocking comments. So, some you know just insult. Someone will say something, and instead of listening to what they've said, they'll insult the person. So, which is a complete fallacy. You know, they the straw man. They just knock the person down and hiding in anonymity. Yeah, so exactly. There's just so much that doesn't work. The other problem as well is a lot of the conversation happens, and I love the radio, so don't get me wrong, but one-sided conversations on the radio, like so-called dialogues, but they're just panel discussions. Hmm. You know, what we really need is people, which we have with Consciousness Cafe, people come into a room together, and then you are, there's something about when we're actually physically together. Um, and we can see someone's look on their face, someone's the way their body language is. Mm-hmm. And, and the facilitators in Consciousness Cafe really get you to talk not just how you think, but how you feel. And what's really amazing is when someone feels anger or feels sadness, you can feel it too because, mm. you know, it's very these human connections. And when that channel of emotion opens up between people and they start to really understand how the other feels – they are much more open to how the other thinks. And it, and it really, you can see these kind of channels begin to open up of understanding and want and willingness to understand. Hmm. Um, so for me, I think, you know, Consciousness Cafe, we just want to keep growing that and rolling it out across the country and especially taking it into schools and getting young people to having these conversations. I mean, we've seen 16-year-olds come to Consciousness Cafe with their parents and um, they just think, oh, why can't we have these kind of conversations at school? Why can't we talk about racism at school? Because mm-hmm. often it's shut down and quietened down. No, it's not really happening. We just, we're all being polite to each other. It's okay. It's okay. Move along. Move along. It'll be fine. Let's just be nice. Just be nice, everybody. Sure. So, you know, we, we have been nice. We've been nice for about, you know, 23 years. Um, and things are getting a little bit unnice at the moment, mm-hmm. and it's time to talk about that. Talk about that frustration which is there. Um, I, I think people are afraid to talk because often they think, oh, it'll just make it worse. But we've been doing this now for three years, and we found it absolutely doesn't make it worse. It makes it so much better. Just, just, just on that thought, you spoke a bit about how 
you know, made, made reference to, to cancer, how things need to get worse before they get better. Are you quite uh-huh. optimistic about um, where the country is headed, you know, with all the political um, upheavals that are, that are going on right now and instability and our economy as well is, a, is in a, a bit of a mess, but are you optimistic about where we're going um, as a people and as a country? Yeah, I am actually optimistic. I mean, literally just bought a house in South Africa, so I must believe that things are going well. Well, many like <laughs> houses in Canada or Australia. Um, no, I, I, I am optimistic. I, I just see there's such, you know, this, 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 uh, this frustration and all that comes from such passion, from such love. People love their country. They love South Africa. And we're a country with a dream. I mean, we, my colleague Keke and I, we went to America to a racial justice conference there. Okay. And we were struck by the time we spent there, how they really, there doesn't seem to be a dream. There didn't seem to be a real hope of reconciliation. Hmm. Or kind of really moving, or a plan. Whereas in South Africa, it feels like we really have this, we're moving forward. We have ideas that we need to get these things sorted. We need to get the land questions sorted. And right now, we it's, it's awareness that it's a complex issue. It's nuanced. It's not just, you know, give back the land doesn't just mean give back the land. It's, and there's so much more to discuss. And I feel also quite heartened that, you know, the, the, the government of the day is really bringing into opening this up to big discussion, not mm. just sort of going ahead with it. Because we need to talk. We need to talk on so many levels. You know, there are some farms I've heard about in, in, in the Western Cape where, you know, a farm that actually has always sent, it's created like a, a university on its, on its farm and has always educated its workers like highly and really involved them in the farm. And, you know, those kind of stories often don't get heard about. So there's mm-hmm. lots of interesting land stories that are going on. And I think, um, yeah, if we can have a, com- a complex understanding and be comfortable with the complexity of all of this, we are going to keep progressing in a beautiful way. It's when we get very narrow-minded and very sort of one-track-minded, and then I think, oh, we need, you know, we, that that worries me. Hmm. I'll, I'll keep going forward and, and and backwards. So just just keep sure. up my um, hope, please. <laughs> Inside hope disappears. You you made a um, a reflection again. Um, in one of the clinics in the rural parts of Umtata, or was it Natal? And the patients look more like inmates than actual patients. What is freedom without better health care? How is the experience like um, observing all of this? That was a very difficult time. Um, that was the very near the beginning of the book, and I felt so angry. I felt so let down by the ANC government. Hmm. I was, I felt furious actually, um, that this, this clinic, which was previously run by a mission, um, as many of the clinics were in the Eastern Cape. And after that 94, it was decided that the government should take over because of course they should be responsible for this. And they took over and they started giving tenders to, you know, cadres, whatever. And these tenders were not delivering. So you've got, you know, hospitals without enough doctors, without enough nurses, but also without enough necessary equipment like oxygen and, um, you know, things to test blood sugars and just all the absolute things that a hospital should have. Mm-hmm. And I just it was such a bitter pill. It was such a bitter pill for me to see that, you know, I couldn't understand why a government who had fought for freedom for all of all black people 
we'll just let these people suffer and, and go to ruin. And, and then in the, the, even the road to the hospital was hardly navigable. You know, I just felt such anger and frustration. Um, and, you know, looking back later, I asked myself, was that because in some ways as a white person, I wanted to blame the ANC government. I wanted, mm. you know, a scapegoat. You know, so there's also, I mean, because often people don't like and white people criticize the ANC government, especially during that time, mm-hmm. because it was like, well, you can't criticize because your government was even worse when you guys, you know, ruled. Just a completely fair point. So, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I don't know. I think I was looking to have, I was looking to become a whole South African, to care about everybody in the in the country as a whole. And I just felt so angry that if you were poor and black and rural, you were just completely forgotten about. I just thought that was just so deeply unjust, and I couldn't make sense of it. Hmm. And you know, it's it's the reality of what's still happening in in a lot of townships and, and, and rural parts of, of, of South Africa, which is, is very appalling uh, to think that we've made so much progress or so they would like us to believe, but there's people that if they contract a certain disease, they most definitely going to die. When, whereas if there was a better healthcare system, they wouldn't. In any case, moving right along, you... No, but can I just say to that as well, like I was in this other hospital mm-hmm. and this guy came in presenting with appendicitis and he needed to get transferred to Mtata to the Nelson Mandela Hospital so he could probably have an appendectomy. And the ambulance came and the ambulance was not for him, it was for somebody else. And I said, oh, no, we can't, wow. can't take him. And I was just like, what? Like, he has to go, you know? And that for me is just like, if what if it was me? Living in rural South Africa, when you when you get sick, you die. You know, I met another young woman who was sort of my age in, in a village, and we walked together through the village. And I was talking about her life and with her, and she said that her boyfriend had died from pneumonia. And she was just like, "That's, that's terrible. It's terrible." And these things you know, can be treated. Like, mm-hmm. But what's it like to be in your mid twenties and your boyfriend has died from pneumonia? You know, that's. It's so unfair. And, 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 and she was so not blase about it, but I thought she obviously has to be kind of big shouldered about it because that's just what life is like here. Mm, and I guess mm. it's hard for us to compare life in the cities to life in the rural areas because we have different expectations, different needs, different desires. Or do we, you know, or do mm, we? Mm, mm, so mm. I find that those things very hard to reckon in a country, especially for me, a country with diamonds and gold. We are a country with diamonds and gold. So there should be an ambulance for a man who needs an appendectomy. But there isn't. The The truth of the matter is that. Sometimes they they, have, they arrive like an, an hour after you, you call the ambulance. And it's like if this person is bleeding, they would have bled to death. And if they have something very urgent to take care of, it won't be taken care of. Because by the time you get here, it's, it's already worse. Or the person is dead, which in a lot of cases, yeah. a lot of people die. <laughs> On a daily. I just get, I just feel very frustrated in South Africa. If you're rich, you know, everything is available for you behind a wall. Everything. You know, you can have wonderful education. You can have wonderful health care. It's just amazing what you can have. But if you're not rich, you're on the other side of the wall and there is so little for you. Whereas compared to the UK, for example, where they have a national health system, which everybody pretty much is part of. So you, you have your ch- your ba- baby on the NHS and everybody is treated equally. Everyone wow. gets the same kind of treatment. Um, 
and the schools you don't go to private schools if you can but you know you go to public schools and and they're good and everybody gets similar education Mm. I think that's that for me is, is is a just society. That's what I really believe in. Mm. Um, but then we all have to participate to make those things better. We have to be active citizens to hold our hospitals to account, to hold our schools to account, which you see in the UK. You mm. see people holding their local school to account. You see people holding their local hospital to account. Um, so I, I think also what uh, I kind of got through the book from my from my. From my research, um, I started to feel that the 20 years of the ANC's first, you know, first time of rule, that they had almost said to us, don't worry, you can relax now. We're in charge. We'll sort it out. It's almost like it was almost like they took the power away in a kind of quite, quite kind way, in a quite a, uh, maybe a paternalistic way. And people didn't feel like they had to show up anymore and had to mm. really hold the country. To- mm-hmm. And I feel that that is critical for a, a true democracy, for democracy to work, we have to hold the country to account. We have to be active citizens. We have to participate. And of course, we started to see that with the sort of, you know, with the end of Zuma, people really started to push for him to leave office. They were no mm, longer happy. Mm, mm. And people have found their power, but it's very new. And we need to keep using that power to hold our schools to account, to hold our hospitals account. We, we really, really do. And I think especially if we could bring the power of across the different race groups together to stand together, which mm. I think happened with Zuma, you know, then we can really hold our, our institutions to account mm. because there's no reason we were, you know, people get good education when they get it and uh, we have access to resources when we have it and we can, we can build that and share that. I, I really believe that we, this people are so passionate about South Africa. Mm. So anyway, Another another reflection, which which um, is very important, uh, speaking to quite a number of um, societal issues that we have now, is how the you know the, the white kids uh, during the time were taught to fear black men, but not necessarily black women, like you said uh, early on in the interview, because they were the nurses and and the nannies. That's they they were they had this they were a symbol of nurturing and care. Uh-huh. Um, within the system itself. Now, I'd like us to to to, to juxtapose um, that with a reflection that is made later on, much later on in the book uh, by Melissa Tando. And let me let me read this extract, and then we'll, we'll talk about it now. It, it's it says, um, "Oh, oh no, of course not." She says, "We are all victims of the same system." Every single one of us, the narrative where the black man is the robber who's going to come in the night and rape you and your kid, it's the same narrative. Yes, it's true. The criminals that are out there that are angry, that are stealing. Yes, they are black guys, but the system was designed so that um, only black men would have the need and the anger to go and smash someone's window and threaten their life, lives. That's how you have to look at it, end quote. Yeah. So now I'd like us to, to, to look at this, juxtaposing it with what's happening right now with, you know, hashtags like Me Too or more commonly in, in South Africa and that speaks true to us in our politics, men are trash. The effects of the past on the men, the perception of the past and that is upheld by the present about black men and how it influences uh, their behavior, mm-hmm. one. 
And two, is it justifiable? If not, how do we sort of now move past this? Well, I really, I can't speak on behalf of black men <laughs> at all. Um, so Ms. Melissa Tander in that paragraph was talking about how she as a black woman fears black men. Sure. She'd been, she'd been on a beach and on New Year's Day writing in her diary and two black guys had come down to the beach and she, she'd thought, oh shit, I'm in trouble now. Sure. And then a little bit later on, she'd seen two, two white, white guys. Mm-hmm. She suddenly felt safe and she thought, I cannot think like this. Sure. I cannot operate like this. This is wrong, but this is what's happened in my mind. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know what you want. What, what's the question you want me to say? Do, do, uh, is, is it, is it, is it justifiable for white, for people to fear black men or for black men to be the ones that perpetrate crimes more? I mean, what is the question? So I think with, in, in terms of like men are trash and what, what's going on in, in, in a sense, it, it, it looks like, you know, the effects of what was, um, done to a lot of black men in the past and how that's affected the relationship between fathers who were, were, were present because a lot of them were absent and how they used to now come home, beat their wives and, and just purport this idea of abuse because at work that's, that's, you know, they were stripped of their manliness. Yes. They were, um, I forgot the term, but, but, but you, 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 you get, you get the picture of mm-hmm. how that now became a generational thing where it has landed men in this place where masculinity or the performance of it and patriarchy has landed us in a, in a, in a very, 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 very deplorable uh, position where a lot of our women are dying because of the men. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, South Africa, I mean, I can only talk about my experience as a woman predominantly living in white society sure. in South Africa. But I, I know from that experience, I found growing up as a white woman in South African society quite difficult because it was so patriarchal. Mm, mm. Um, and I, I really, you know, I was not someone who wanted to sit in the kitchen while the men stood around the braai, but that was definitely what happened. And I definitely thought when I was old enough that I would have to leave South Africa to find a partner, to find a husband, because I could not be with a South African man because most of the time they do not like smart women or women who express their minds. That was mm-hmm. my perception. With it, you know, um, of course it's a huge generalization, but I really felt that, you know, men did not like women who thought and spoke out. That was very much the South Africa I experienced. Mm. And those men, those white men had the power in that country of that time and how they treated black men and belittled them and crushed them and crushed them and didn't give them a voice and status. I mean, that can only have had such a negative effect. It's Mm. just obvious. And when you are crushed, you look for someone else to crush, don't you? You look for someone else to exert your power over. Mm -hmm. Um, And that said, we actually recently had a consciousness cafe about um, why well, the topic was chosen was why is feminism so misunderstood and despised? And it was very interesting because what became very clear was that the reason why women 
move towards feminism was because it's kind of like an outside, it's kind of like a, what do you call it? Like it almost gives legitimacy to your personal feelings. Mm. So many women have been oppressed, disregarded, marginalized, overlooked, um, you know, raped, attacked, abused by often by family members um, and by, you know, people at universities, schools, whatever. And people are carrying personal pain, but they actually often cannot stand up to their attacker at all because often it is a family member. So feminism as a sort of ideology gives you something that you can hold on to and stand with to actually help you kind of, you know, try and bring down the system of pain that you've experienced. But everybody comes to it from such a different story because everyone has their own backstory of why they're feeling this pain, mm-hmm. which is why it's misunderstood because, of course, it has so many different faces. But anyway, in that conversation, well, there was one man in the room, and we got asked him to hold the voice of male supremacy. He was a black man. And he, you know, he admitted, though, he said, you know, you're asking me to hold this voice. I'm very uncomfortable doing this. But I'd also like to point out that this was the voice I was raised with. Mm. So... In my culture, I was told that I, as, as a boy, as a black boy, I was much more important than black girls. And um, I was the strong one. I was the smart one. And he always was the smart one in his class. He always came top of his class. And one year or one term, a girl came first and he came second. So he came home from school and he said to his dad, dad, I came second. And he said, who came first? And he said it was a girl. And his father shook his head and said, now you've really failed. Mm. So what's also interesting is it, is it is it just a, co- a cause of apartheid or is there also something within you know black culture which also has this already there? I I cannot answer that. I don't know the answer. Uh, but, but I mean, in 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 this instance, I guess we we have glimpses of it in how the you know the movie Ngaiabai and and the politics around that played out and how. <laughs> culturism um as well plays a part in 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 this dominating i this idea of dominating where masculinity and and patriarchy are, are concerned uh both in how the movie ended and in how the congralesa as well wanted to shut it down and just censor it yeah. completely are you a feminist yeah i think you have to be yeah as okay. a woman oh, you're a feminist Bongani. Well, <laughs> it's a very difficult question to answer because, in in, in some instances, it, it makes certain women um, what uncomfortable. But I, I believe that, as a person that believes in freedom and equality, that essentially makes me a feminist because that's what feminism is about. As much as I want to be recognized as a black person, it's some in in, in some way or form or shape. You know, our ideas from being a black man and for a woman fighting for their rights have a common thread. I'm asking, so I'm asking this question because there was, there was a point where you meet Lindiwe's mom and, and there's, there's terrible, terrible things that, that happened there. And my question was, how did that make you feel now that we've established that you are feminist? Okay, so this, so this is a story of in the book where I start to meet a lot of women chiefs. Sure. And the chiefs are um, 
prior to 94, not in all clans, <clears throat> but in some and many, um, women could not be the chief. But Mandela said, you know, all, all people are equal above, everyone's equal in front of the people, so women too can be chiefs. Sure. And um, so we, I started to meet quite a lot of women chiefs. And we had interesting conversations about what are women chiefs different to male chiefs and do they have different ways of doing things? And it was, it was quite interesting. And then we discovered that I got discovered, I found a story basically, which is a very interesting story, is that actually quite a few women chiefs were living in fear of their lives in the in Tembuland and in Ponderland, well, actually sure. in Tembuland, mm -hmm. because one of the women chiefs had been assassinated. She'd been shot in her in her hut, um, and she had and they'd burned the hut down around her. And then Diwe was her daughter, sure. a very young, kind of um, pretty young, sort of twenty something, who was now effectively the chief of this village, which was a bit bizarre because she was very much, you know, young woman, kind of almost into rave music. And now she's the chief of the village, you know, it, it doesn't, didn't quite compute in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but so, so, yeah, so she was, the reason the mother was killed was because it was a, yeah, the, the men in the village, some of the people were not happy and said that she wasn't the, the rightful chief and that somebody, some man should have been the rightful chief. Mm. So your question was, how do I feel about, how did I yes. feel about How that? does that make you feel? was shocking because she wasn't the only one. I mean, there was Nukaku Jomba, um, there was Noetili Mutirara, another chief, and they were also fear. At the same time, I'd met both of these women and they'd also been threatened. Their lives had been threatened. Um, yeah, I just, how did it make me feel? Frightened, I guess. And, and, and also just, actually, I felt, I guess I felt an affinity with them, mm. to be honest. Mm. With Nukaku mm. Jomba, I felt an affinity because uh you know she she was asked to be the chief after her husband died and then kind of all sort of machiavellian things began to happen and the person who had had her back no longer had her back sure and that happens all the time like my friend works in an investment firm in Scotland, and she was asked by one of the greatest powers of the firm to, to take over the leadership of something and then when somebody else found out who wanted it a man he did everything he did could to try and stop that from happening. It's all the time. It doesn't matter if you're living in a hut or a clan in Tembuland or if you're living in Edinburgh. Mm. It happens to women all the time. So I guess what that story did, it made me feel an affinity with the women um, in Tembuland. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's very, it's very, complex and you know thinking about it in my head you know the the colonial the colonial idea um of of patriarchy that stems as far back as you know some of the people in the old testament um if 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 you're a believer and and how it's found its way to regenerate and to morph into Something as deadly as what we see in, in, in society today when a man would actually take a gun, point it at his, at the very same person that they just said they loved probably the previous day or a couple of hours before, but because of anger or frustration or whatever the case is, will pull the trigger and, and, and then dispose the body. 
And there's so many of these instances that are, that are coming up and wow. It's heavy. It's heavy. It's heavy on the back. Yeah, I find I don't understand. I actually was talking about this with my husband last night because I've started reading a book based in Syria where people in this book, there's honor killings take place because someone goes off with someone they love and that's, they mustn't marry someone they love. They must marry someone who they're supposed to marry. What? As a so then, so then they are killed. And, um, you know, it happens in India, Pakistan. Um, it, it just, I, I actually said to my husband, I just don't understand. I don't understand what, what is at work here. Hmm. Why are we, why are, why are women not allowed to have power? Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take you a bit. Maybe because we're so powerful already. You know, maybe, um, you know, I'm, creating a whole human being at the moment you know uh, that's what while, i was about to say yes you know while i'm doing everything else i normally do i'm also oh, I'm just basically on the side i'm making a person <laughs> 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 maybe that's why maybe men are just jealous of women is it a fundamental jealousy <laughs> well I, I guess we'll, we'll never know until we, we sit them down i guess at one consciousness cafe and actually <laughs> <laughs> pose the question Cry my beloved country, cry freedom, a dry white season. Listening to the stories at the TRC, your feelings, thoughts, reflections? Well, I mean, I talk, that takes you into a chapter in my book where I go back in time to when I was at university at Rhodes and when I first became aware of, the, you know, I watched these movies, Cry, cry the Beloved Country, cry, Dry White Season, Cry Freedom. And I, I make the point that, you know, I couldn't leave the house for days because I couldn't stop crying because I finally saw if on film um, the reality about the country that I'd grown up in. Hmm. So I think, you know, we grew up in such a sheltered environment. You know, it, apartheid was very successful at censorship and propaganda. Hmm. And hmm. people will say, I can't, you know, we, we have this conversation all the time. How can white people say they didn't know? How could you not know? Of course you knew. You know, we have that conversation, that argument all the time. But I don't think the um, it's appreciated how cloistered our minds were and how well shut down things were, especially for the children of apartheid. And I think for me, going to university in 1994, seeing those films, starting to watch the TRC on the television, it was... It was like your whole world had just suddenly changed. You know, you, everything had been splintered open and it was shocking to the core uh, and terrifying. It, it, you know, imagine everything that you've ever believed about the world suddenly is not true. <laughs> it's, it's, and I think that's very hard for people to reconcile and um, mm. to make sense of. And I, I know for as a young person, I think also the 90s was a time of a lot of hedonism. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of hope that these things had also been thrown off. And if you're young and you're kind of, you can get swept away with that, that euphoria. So there was a kind of euphoria of the 90s where you, you know, there was so much freedom all of a sudden. There was so much possibility. But at the same time, there was all this rot that was being exposed. And the two were very hard to sit by side by side. Because um, you're staring at the rot, but then you're, you know, you're seeing these amazing parties and rave culture happening in downtown Johannesburg, and the train station being turned into a venue for a big party, and so much more freedom than you would have ever been allowed during apartheid. And I think um, 
you know, do you choose the euphoria or do you choose to focus on the rot? And a lot of people chose to focus on the euphoria. And uh, I think that the, especially as a, as a white person, seeing that horror, um, which would inculcate the community that you were part of, mm-hmm. actually to kind of survive, you begin to shut down to it. Hmm. Faith. There were, there, were, there were a lot of exciting moments that um, <laughs> I read in the book. Some parts very funny as well. Um, the fear, the courage, I guess, um, those come in. In, 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 in that part of the book. Did you eventually get to use, um, what we call in our mother tongue skiki? Even the bucket, um, that, that's kept in the house for, for peeing at night because obviously the fear of leaving the house in, in the AMs or in the, in the, in the late evening. Absolutely. So this is the chapter where I go and spend a weekend with Faith in sure. Kanye, which is a small village near Pobo. Sure. And um, she has, uh, we share her bed and um, we have the pee bucket and I also have the bucket which I am to bathe in. Sure. Um, and yes, I absolutely used that pee bucket. Um, I was nowhere, the, the, the long drop was a good sort of, I don't know, 50 meters from the house. And faith made me very, very aware that there was something to be scared of, and that was snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely terrified of snakes. And so um, there was no way I was going to that long drop without, without, without the light of day. Mm. So, yeah, so you can have a wonderful picture of me um, poised over a bucket in your mind, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what about the culture of, of, of the people? Um you know, your encounter with Ubuntu, especially with the um, Shakulas. Yes. Yes. What was, what was the experience like there? What in, when, with, the, with the family that I stayed with or the Shakulas from the whole village? Shakulas from the village. Well, it was interesting because there were many Shakulas in the village, obviously. They were all related to Sasulu, Walter Sasulu, who Faith explained to me that he changed his name. From Klakula in order to protect his family. Oh, so the, the so the head Klakula lady in the village, you know, on her walls of her house were pictures of Albertina and Walter on the walls of the house. And as soon as we arrived there, Faith's mother, Mrs. Klakula, said, "You need to go and see the other Mrs. Klakula because that's a sign of respect." Yes. And um, yeah, it was very interesting because she actually there was a child that lived with her, who wasn't her child, who was you could see she was had a slightly. Um, I don't know, mental, mental sort of um, disability or something. She wasn't all there. And she, Mrs. Lakula explained that, you know, you do not leave this child to be by herself. And she's, her parents don't want her or I think they, they had died. So she comes and lives with us. And that was a real example of Ubuntu that I had seen where, you know, we are a village and we look after the children of this village together. Mm, mm. Um, but, um, but yeah, she, but in terms of towards me, she was very, um, very suspicious of me. And, uh, and not very, uh, she wanted to know what I was doing there. And it was very, <laughs> it was a very interesting experience. And I, I quite liked it actually, because as I make the point in the book, you're so used to as a white woman, black people being, you know, kind to you or deferent or always very polite anyway, even if they don't mean it. You yeah. Know, yeah. Don't to be. But she wasn't. I was in her house in her village and I was going to be asked and taken to account. And it was very refreshing. Um, and a real, you know, and I think that's what, I think that's also what I was looking for is to get beneath the veneer of, of this sort of politeness and actually let's have some real conversations. And let me see the other parts. Okay. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Interesting. Um, 
But I also, yeah, I um, I got, I was in trouble in the village because I brought a, I brought a bottle of wine with me, and Mrs. Sakula, the other one, not the head lady, sure. but the one I stayed with, um, I, I shared it with her and, and Faith, and of course, everyone had a little hangover the next day. It's <laughs> like you got my mother-in-law drunk. <laughs> so, so uh, because of time, we 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 will stop this part of the conversation here. That sure. concludes the first part of Lost Where We Belong with Claire L. Bell. Um, from the Youth Leadership Platform team, uh, catch uh, the second part of Lost Where We Belong, where we continue to speak about um, apartheid, post-apartheid, and the effects of the system, overcoming prejudices, coming to terms with the realities of the racial relationships that we have amongst us. But stay tuned um, to the Youth Leadership Platform. This is CliffCentral.com.